0: Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy as we continue in the first letter to Timothy. This is part 5 in the series entitled Christianity and All People. I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. My sources are the same uh, as they were last week except for a few additional. Uh, Still Philip Graham Ryken and his expository commentary from 1 Timothy. Uh, Michael Bentley, Passing on the Truth, John R. W. Stott, The Message of First Timothy, and then I have John Calvin, John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s, from Calvin's Commentaries, and uh, Albert Barnes, um, also a dated uh, commentator, Notes on the Epistle of Paul to Timothy, and then Studies by Stephen Cole in First Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. Now, why would he say that? Because the false teachers in his region were saying that he was not for real. So he's defending himself. I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this your word. Thank you for what you want to say to us through it. Help us to understand this word. And thank you for your Holy Spirit and the presence of God to help us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. One day the great missionary Hudson Taylor was traveling on a Chinese ship from Shanghai to Ningpo. He had been witnessing to a man named Peter. He was actually resisting the message of the gospel, but seemed to be under deep conviction in terms of what Hudson Taylor was sharing with him. In the course of events, this man Peter fell overboard. Taylor panicked, as anyone might, when he saw that no one made any effort to try to save this man. At any rate, instinctively, he sprang to the mast, he let down the sail, and he jumped overboard in an attempt to save his new friend's life. A fishing boat was close by, so Hudson Taylor asked for their help. But they wouldn't stop their fishing to help this drowning man, unless Hudson Taylor agreed to pay them. Not only that, but unbelievably so, they wanted to barter for every last cent that Taylor had. Finally, after he would agreed to pay them a lot of money, they agreed to help. In less than a minute, after dragging the fishing net, they found Peter. But it was too late. He was already dead. They were too busy fishing and fighting over the money to worry about a drowning man. It's a tragic story how callous, how self-centered these Chinese fishermen must have been to know that a man was drowning nearby, and yet they were more concerned about their own financial gain than they were about saving a man's life. But before we condemn those fishermen, we might take a deep breath. And pull the log out of our own eye. I mean, are you all that concerned about the people around you? People that are lost without Jesus Christ? Do you care more about your own comfort and financial gain? Do you go about your business day after day, week after week, without ever really considering the seriousness of those in this world who are lost without faith in Jesus Christ? You say, Well, what can I do? I'm only one person there are billions who don't know Christ, well, for starters, you can do what our text says here. You can pray. You can pray. And maybe you can ask yourself this question. Are your prayers more about yourself and those you love? Or do you ever pray for someone you don't know or someone that you do know who's asked you to pray? You might ask me, Pastor, are you serious? I mean, if I really want to make a difference, why would I only pray? Well, according to our text, praying is making a difference. It makes a tremendous difference in the lives of people you know and people that you don't even know. I've told you in the last few weeks in talking about Paul's conversion that I was converted when I was 16 years of age. And what I found out later on About a month later, my friends felt like they could tell me this now. They said, come back here, we want to show you something. And in a basket, they had a number of names that they were praying for. And I was in the basket. It was always wonderful to know that people cared enough about me to pray for me, and a friend who cared enough about me to reach out to me and invite me to come to his church. Here's an amazing thought. According to Scripture, the sovereign God of the universe has chosen to work in response to the prayers... Of his people. Now, God is a very big God, and I don't know how He does all that, but His Word is clear. We should pray. So, three lessons this morning. The first being, the church's prayers must concern all people. The church's prayers must concern all people. He says in verse 1, I urge then, I urge that first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving... Be made for all people. So believe it or not, prayer is the most important thing that you can do. Our session, our elders pray for you. When we gather in our monthly meetings, we spend sometimes up to a half hour praying for you. Praying for the needs that we know of, and just praying for our church in general. And what Paul has in mind is is prayer in public worship. Uh, He's trying to help Timothy as a young pastor to know what to do. And so Paul puts this verse into four parts. And as you read those different words, you might think, what's the difference? Well, I'm going to try to flesh that out for you. But I have to say that even John Calvin, (laughs) the father of Presbyterianism, in his commentary, he said this. I admit humbly that I do not understand the difference between the four terms. Look at the four terms again. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And uh, there are commentators that say, really the first three are kind of the same thing, but just in a different way. It's kind of like the uh, the prayer that I used to hear when I was a young Christian in, in churches. Uh, they'd ask a, a lay person to pray, and he would say, lead God and direct us. And I had a friend say, isn't that the same thing? So really, maybe they are the same thing. But let's, let's look at the four parts quickly. Number one, request. He says request, which are petitions. And Paul urged us in Philippians 4 to bring our petitions to the Lord. So they're requests for other people. And yes, there could be requests for yourself. You should pray for yourself. But don't pray only for yourself. We should pray for those who are ill. We should pray for those who are sad. We should pray for those whose heart's been broken. We should pray for those who are troubled. We should pray for those who are in the midst of a difficult decision to make. And if someone has asked you to pray, you should pray. <clears throat> this is more about specific needs. After all, it's, it's easy to be real general in our prayers. And Paul is saying, don't be general, Be specific. Secondly would be prayers. So requests, then prayers. And I think what Paul might have in mind here is prayer for the church, for the body of Christ in the world. We should pray for God's blessing upon his witness through his people throughout the world. And even during worship, even during this worship service, it would be appropriate for us to pray for those that he's mentioned. And then third is intercession The word intercession is more about an appeal for God to intervene, and it's where you go boldly before the throne of God and asking God to intervene on behalf of the needs of other people. This is where you recognize that you're entering into the presence of the King Himself in order to make boldly a request of Him. Intercession should be made for renewal. Intercession should be made for revival. I was reading this weekend about a revival in Hebrides and uh, in a Scottish island, and, and as a result, it sounded like a revival took place because of two older women, two older women who were confined to their home. They were infirmed; one was blind, the other was bent over in arthritic condition, so she couldn't go anywhere. So the two of them prayed, and God sent a mighty revival in their land. From 1949 to 1952. And uh, even had some connection to our president. So you might check that out. But anyway, we should intercede for revival. We should intercede for reformation in the church. We should pray for pastors. We should pray for teachers. We should pray for church planters who are starting new churches. And yes, we should pray for missionaries who are on the very front lines. Doing what we are not able to do. Because they were willing to go. And then the fourth category is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. All of our prayers should be offered with a spirit of thanksgiving. At Presbytery, there was a pastor who was talking about this very thing. And, and he said uh, he walked into church one day and he was kind of critical of this and that. and. When this lady said to him, how, how are you doing? And uh, actually, no, it wasn't in, in Presbyterian. It was actually at Mark Gunn's sister's funeral. And the pastor said, uh, I walked into church one, one Sunday and uh, Janie said to me, how are you, pastor? And he had all kind of negative things to say. And she said, well, I guess there's got to be something, something that you could be thankful for. And he said, that was a, a rebuke that I needed. And he said, that was Janie. So, at any rate, we should all be thankful for all the things that God has given to us. And a spirit of thanksgiving is something that should be a part of worship. How little do we stop and thank God for the blessings He's given to us. And did you also know this? Here's a thought. Did you know that God always answers our prayers? You know, we say sometimes, God did not answer my prayer. Yes, He did. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says no. And sometimes God says wait. So He always answers our prayers. And Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, who do we pray for? Well, look what he says in verse 2. For kings and for all those in authority. Has there ever been a time, has there ever been a time when our country did not need our prayers more than now? Well, I'm sure there has been. But I didn't live then. I live now. And in my lifetime, I would say it's just about as bad as I've ever seen it in terms of what's going on in Washington. My wife was doing some reading about what's going on in Washington. She said, that you know, the difference now is that congressmen years ago used to live in Washington. And now they don't live there. They fly in and they fly out. And so it used to be that when congressmen were getting together, there were Democrats, there were Republicans. And yes, they didn't agree, but they knew how to disagree agreeably. Now we don't seem to know how to do that. Because they don't live there, the kids don't know each other, they don't see each other except in the halls of Congress, which is just very sad. So, let's pray for our country. We live in a country that's divided, our country's leadership is divided, and there's political posturing, there's fake news, there's anger, there's hostility. So, pray for our president. Pray for our congressman. Pray for a real resolution to the shutdown. Pray for peace in our land. And pray for peace in our world. And why should we do that? Paul tells us why. This is good. And actually, verse 2, look at verse 2. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And, And, you know, it's just not quiet anymore, is it? It's not peaceable anymore, is it? It just seems like there's all this yelling going on. And calling names, and it's just so unbelievable. So we need to pray for our country. Pray for this country. Pray for the people of God. And in his commentary, Albert Barnes says that the Jews, quote, regarded the whole Gentile world as excluded from covenant mercies. So he was saying, don't just pray for your people. Pray for all people. And that's hard for us. The church's prayers must concern all people. That's the first lesson. Now let's look at the second lesson. That God's desire concerns all people. Look at verse 3. He says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, then into verse 4, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. When Paul says to, quote, come to a knowledge of the truth, end of quote, he's basically saying that God desires that all people would become Christians. Paul says the God who saves desires that everyone come to a knowledge of the truth, which would mean to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You ever heard of liberation theology? It came up in the late 20th century, primarily among Roman Catholics in Latin America. It emphasized liberation from social, political, and economic domination. One of the primary errors of liberation theology is the belief that God has a preference for the poor. The other extreme would be American evangelicalism, which tends to be more concerned with the affluent than those who struggle economically. The point of our text is, it's saying that the gospel is for Everyone. Everyone, Christianity offers hope to the world in that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, we have a theological problem in our text. You can call it the elephant in the room for those that uh, have been through officer training. They definitely would pick up on this, I would think. Did you pick up on the theological problem in our text? What does Paul mean when he says that God wants slash desires all people to be saved when Scripture is very clear that all people will not be saved? Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So you compare one Scripture with other Scriptures, right? And the best prayers, we've talked about prayer today, the best prayers come from sound theology. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount that more people will be lost and suffer eternal death and eternal punishment than will be saved. He said it this way, he said, broad is the road, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on that road. Narrow is the road, straight is the way that leads to life. And only a few will find it. So what I'm really asking is, how does our text here in First Timothy gel with the doctrine clearly taught in Scripture concerning God's sovereignty in our salvation? A doctrine the Scripture calls election. I think the best way to understand this passage is to make a distinction, a distinction between God's general will and God's specific will. One of my commentators, Philip Graham Ryken, puts it this way, God's desire, what God wants, is somehow less strong than what he wills. So there is a difference between God's preferential will and God's decreed will. Some believe that this text teaches that Christ died for every single soul who ever lived. The difficulty with this text is other scripture passages teach a more definite atonement. Limited or definite atonement means that when Jesus paid for our sins, he knew what he was paying for. And he actually paid it. Now I want you to let that sink in. He did not die to simply make salvation possible, but to make salvation actual. So when the Bible says that Christ died for all people, the question is, does it mean that he atoned for the sins of of each and every human being who ever lived? The answer is no. The answer is no. Sometimes all, the word all, does not mean every single person, but all kinds of people. You have to read the scriptures the way that it was written for the hearers to read it. And maybe you aren't reading it that way. The Gospels at one point in the ministry of Jesus said this. And I'm going to read from John chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. Here's what it says in John's Gospel. Many people, because they had heard that Jesus had performed this sign, and talking about raising Lazarus from the dead, went out to meet him, went out to meet Jesus. I mean, if you'd heard that somebody named Jesus... Had raised your friend from the dead? You want to go meet him too. And so the Pharisees, it says in verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. It's hyperbole. It's hyperbole in that the whole world hadn't gone after Jesus. A whole lot of people had gone after Jesus. So let's make sure we understand what our text is saying. It's saying that there are no people, there's no race, no class of people in the world that will be excluded from salvation. Because God desires that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception. And if you would like to talk further about this, I would love to talk to you about it. I just wish I had more time to talk to you about it here. So, let's go to point three. First, prayer, first uh, lesson is the church's prayers must concern all people. Second lesson is God's desire concerns all people. Third lesson is Christ's death concerns all people. And here I'm in verse five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Paul very clearly wants Timothy to know that there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why wouldn't this one God, who wants all people to be saved, save them in different ways, some through Hinduism, some through Buddhism, others through Judaism or Islam, or through some other contemporary cult? Why does God have to insist that all people be saved in the same way? Paul tells us there's only one Savior, there's only one God, there's only one mediator between God and all mankind. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You should know that there are at least three views out there about this, and this is where your outline is very helpful for the next little bit. Number one is the exclusive view. The exclusive view. This is the view held by Christians that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world, and that salvation is by explicit faith in Him. Paul calls this exclusivism, which is very negative and elitist because it seems to go against Uh, the universal offer of the gospel. But it's the view of the Bible. And secondly is the inclusive view. And this view claims that Jesus is the Savior of the world, but he saves different people in different ways, especially through the religion of their choosing. Third is the pluralistic view. The pluralistic view has been making headway in our culture Our culture is a lot skeptical about truth. You know that. So this view, this pluralistic view, not only tolerates the different religions out there, but actively supports their independent power to save. As you might imagine, it denies the uniqueness and the the authority and the finality of God's Word, which teaches very clearly that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. Which view was Paul's? Well, it was obviously the exclusive view. He was clearly an exclusivist. He lived in a day when there was a whole bunch of religions. Don't think that we're the only ones that live in a day when there's a whole bunch of religions. Paul lived in a day when there's a lot of religions. And so he insists in his letter to Timothy, remember Timothy, there's only one way, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And, and that's why we need to talk about the uniqueness of Jesus. What, what makes him so unique that he would be the only way? Well, first of all, the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Paul calls him the man, Christ Jesus. Which was his way of affirming both the humanity and the deity of Jesus the Christ. As God, as God, Jesus could enter into our situation and do something about our situation. As man, Jesus could actually relate to our situation, to our struggles, to our suffering. Because he endured so much suffering, even to death on a cross. So turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And it's talking in Hebrews about the fact that, you know, there were high priests in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us is... Jesus is our high priest. He's the priest that we go to. And so look what it says in chapter 4, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended, that is, gone up into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So in verse 14, you have Jesus who is gone into the heavens. That proves he's God. And verse 15, he, he empathizes with us in our weaknesses, showing he's man. And so, the person of Jesus is the first unique feature of who Jesus is. Secondly is the work of Jesus. The work is, Jesus died on a cross. He died as a ransom to pay a debt that you and I could never pay. And no one took his life from him. He laid down his own life, according to the gospel. So turn with me to John again. The gospel of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Come on, i got some Bible drillers out there. Turn your Bibles, turn your Bibles to John 10, verses 17 and 18. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Theologians like to say, Reformed theologians like to say on the work of Christ on the cross that it was sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. Sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect. Mark 10, verse 45. You can just write that down. Mark 10, verse 45, which says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for Many. Not all, many. And you'll see that word many a lot of times in Scripture, you just don't see it in our text. Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament to point to who Jesus was, who the Messiah will be, and even to his death on the cross that he would suffer for us. We're all like sheep gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. In the very last verse of Isaiah 53, it says... He bore the sin of many. It doesn't say all, it says many. So our text is very clear. The one mediator, and this is really the point Paul is trying to get across. The one mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. Christ being Messiah, Jesus being a man, who gave his life as a ransom. So we need to keep these three nouns together. What are the three nouns? The man, the man, the ransom, the the mediator. The man, the ransom, the mediator, and then historically these three nouns refer to the three main events in the life of Christ. So the man would connect with his birth, in which he became a man. The ransom would connect with his death, in which he gave himself as a ransom. And then the mediator word would connect with his exaltation. His resurrection and His ascension to the Father's right hand where He acts as our mediator and as our advocate even today. Isn't it wonderful to know that we have a mediator that not only went before the Father on our behalf on the cross, but He goes before the Father for us every single day. And so no one else but Jesus ever possessed the necessary qualifications to be the mediator between God and sinners. Jesus, as God, man, and mediator, is the only one through whom God saves. and Which means you and I need to be busy sharing the good news of the gospel to as many people as possible. When Paul says he was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles, he is pointing us to our mission, which is to make sure that we share the gospel with all nations, Gentiles as well as Jews. And obviously, God did not intend for the Apostle Paul to evangelize each and every single human being who ever lived. Instead, God simply wanted Paul to share the gospel with every person he encountered. No matter their race, no matter their creed, no matter their customs. And it's the same way today. The same way today. brings us to our verse of the week, which is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Let's read it together out loud. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our God-man for being our mediator, for being the one that takes our place because we can't pay that debt. It's too great. But Jesus, thank you that you paid that debt already on the cross. And all you ask of us is to turn from our sins and turn in faith to you. And I pray, Lord, that we would do that, that everyone in this place would do that, that we would embrace what you've done on our behalf, Lord Jesus, and help us because we've been forgiven. To have a burden for those who have not. Those that we know. Those that we call our friends. God give us compassion for those who are lost. And need you Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.